listening to the Continent of Resistance, a podcast with interviews and discussions on labor movements across Asia. So, welcome to the sixth episode of our podcast, and this time we are, you know, quite excited to doing something that we have been discussing quite for quite a while, right? Kian, about Grab in Southeast Asia is something that you have been working on for quite a while and published a lot of writing on. How are you doing? Hi, Kevin. Pretty good. Yeah. You know, we talk about this episode, the planning for actually for quite a while, and we're quite excited to have three guests this time. And Kian, it's quite unique because you played both the role of a guest and a co-host this time and quite an interesting approach. Do, do you like to introduce the guests, first of all, yourself and then the other two guests that we have for this episode? Sure. Thanks, Kevin. Yeah, it's a really exciting episode. Yeah. So, you know, myself is one of the guests. As, you know, everyone knows, I work at Just Economy and Labor Institute yeah. as a lead researcher and, you know, director. So we have been doing this. We have conducted research around gig workers for, I think, around four to five years now. Right. Like the second uh, guest is Tuan Le. I think he he is a senior lecturer at the School of Business, Law, and Entrepreneurial Entrepreneurship at Swinburne mm-hmm. University in Australia. So he contributed one article in the Grab series called Mercedes in Two Years, Grab Workers right. Mounting Discontent and Wildcat Strikes in Vietnam. So he his research focused on Vietnamese grab and and the grab workers, right. and the last episode, the last speaker, the last guest is Reza Rumakat. He works at Sidan Labor Resource Center or LIPS, so we will call LIPS. And LIPS contributed one also one article in the in the series called "Suicide, Death, Control, and Resistance: Stories of Platform Drivers in Indonesia." So, yeah, I would episode this episode we 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 discussed issues of gig workers in vietnam thailand in indonesia right it's a it's quite an interesting sort of selection or combination of countries and for for listeners who may not have read the series that we have been progressively publishing over the last few months the series is called grab in southeast asia it's a collection of uh, articles by some of the guys here to really think through the kind of situation, you know, the company, Grab company itself, how it's entered the market, its behavior over time, how workers responded in terms of organizing and resistance. So, you know, this episode sort of came out of that thinking around maybe, oh, let's look at, you know, one company and see what, what comparison can we make of Grab and Grab workers in different countries in Southeast Asia, right? Yes. And I think for the format of our episode, we wanted we wanted it to be more conversational. And so I think we uh yeah, we have this round table or panel style of discussion where, you know, uh, all of the guests contribute to to answering the same issues or, you know, trying to interact with each other. Right, right. 
what are some of the the highlights from the both from the articles they contributed and also in the conversation? What are some things that you think are particularly worth highlighting before we、mm-hmm. start the the conversation? Right. I think I like to start with with Tuan's latest piece first with the the one from Vietnam. I think his his piece really highlights the responses from the governments to the grab workers situations. In the piece, he actually kind of started by talking about how talking about the journey of grab in Vietnam, right? How it right. it rises as a dominant、uh, platform in in Vietnam as well as in. Actually, the story is pretty similar, right? Because the、mm. story of Grab in Southeast Asia all I think boils boils down to the story of Grab deal with with Uber, and then you know it, it's kind of allows Grab to 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 take the whole market, right? At the time, right, right. But I think this article, <clears throat> excuse me, really highlights the the also the rises of what Tuan called wildcat strikes in Vietnam, and、mm. you know. He kind of went into detail in talking about、uh, how the the workers or the organized worker use social media uh, in uh, campaigns, and I think for me the highlights that he also delved into in in our discussion is you know to kind of go deeper into his his thought on limitations and and strength of this campaign around social media advocacy, and also、right. talked about talked about the.、Um, The informal kind of organization in Vietnam, and、mm-hmm. and 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 we also discussed the issue of ind- independent trade unions or in- independent structure for for gig workers in Vietnam too. Right, right, right. You know, one one of the things that we kind of spent quite a bit time talking about is is the the question of、uh, organization, right? It's this is one of the things I find most fascinating about the whole. Grab story or just platform economy in general is the way in which workers responded. Sometimes in very similar ways, but also at other times in in contrasting ways. Can you just talk a little bit about the the ways in which you know workers resistance has taken、uh, organizational forms? What what are some of the the interesting takeaways that you、uh, you have around this question? Yes, sure. Yes, I think this this question of organizing or organizational structure is, is something really really key in our discussions, and I wish we could go deeper than that. I I think one of the similarities that we see across across contexts across national contexts, you know, how in country like Vietnam and Thailand, for example, the governments、uh, haven't really ratified the ILO Convention on. Uh, workers' right to association and collective bargaining rights. So there is this gap, this legal loophole, and the lack of recognition of workers' rights. So in Thailand and Vietnam, so we've seen, and, and I think、uh, as well as, as in Indonesia, you know, work workers or gig workers taking informal forms of organizations, right? And you know, we've seen these developments that workers take to the next step. You know, sometimes they come up with creative solution to this organizational question by, you know, bridging. I think the trade union forms and and the informal organizational structure that answer their needs. And I think that is the key issue that we talked about. But you know, personally, I wish we could 
have more time and go deeper to question the reliance on laws or governments. The fact that we, like Tuan said, we need to, the, the prospects of the worker's success depends on, for example, Vietnamese government's reaction or ratification on the ILO convention, right? And he kind right, of hints right. that on the on the ongoing trade agreement negotiation between Vietnam and EU, for example. Definitely wish we can sort of go into more, you know, even spending more time because there's just so much to to both talk about and to to make comparison of. Um, what are there anything else that you think are sort of worth highlighting from the conversation? Yeah, I think toward the end of our conversations, we got into really interesting issues of gender issues within labor activism. And we also talked about collective bargaining. We talked specifically about how the guests or of the researchers and, and activists view this prospect of, of gig workers or writers and couriers, in particular, negotiating directly with the platforms, right? But I think we ran out of time and we didn't really elaborate or expand on that. It's, that's also another issue that's worth yeah, listening to and, and thinking further, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And because the, you know, we really liked the conversation and there was so much to talk about. So this time we decided to split the conversation into two parts series. And then we'll release the, the first part first. And after a few days, we'll release the second part. I, I think the, the, the last thing I, I want to mention is you know, it's really just the start of the conversation, you know, just reflecting on Grab and sort of the introduction platform in Asia, in Southeast Asia. It's still such an ongoing development. Um, you know, as as time right. goes on, we see new developments and new responses from workers and from the government. So it's, it's very much a, a current evolving situation, right? Right, right. That's really important to um yeah to acknowledge and and despite that you know we actually i didn't mean to kind of tone down the the significance of what we discussed as you said right. kevin it's ongoing but we have learned so much you know in the past years and there there's so much similarities as well as differences too that we that we talked about yeah thank you so much for helping us summarize and highlight some of the the key themes and topics. So here's the conversation. Welcome to our latest episode of Content of Resistance podcast. And thank you for joining us again. Uh, this time we have a wonderful uh, cohort of guests today. Uh, we have Riza, we have Tong, and Kyung. Um, they have written um, and researched and engaged with uh, writers and careers in uh, countries from Indonesia to Thailand and to uh, Vietnam. So it's going to be a really interesting and rich conversation. If I can start with the sort of fundamental question about your work, you know, we know there has been a massive growth of uh, platform work across uh, Southeast Asia, and there are a lot of, been a lot of writing and some research uh, around this topic, and and as part of Asian Liberal Review uh, coverage, we have, for example, done a series on Grab in Southeast Asia. So maybe let, let me start with the fundamental question: Why 
did you decide to research or engage with writers and creators? And what is special or unique about this form of, of work, if at all? Maybe we can start with, with Risa. Okay, for the answer of the question, uh, the first number of online driver workers is massive. Estimate at 4 million workers compared to manufacturing workers such as garment and shoe workers at two half a million workers. And then some people who work as driver are former manufacturing workers who hope to get better income and working condition than, and than where they worked before. But instead of safety net, the working condition they experience as a driver are even more uncertain than those of manufacturing worker. That's the first. And the second, the target best wage for online driver are similar to the worker in other sectors such as plantation and garment. And the third, uh, for the algorithm system, this is the form of the work assessment, uh, such as rating, number of delivery, number of time cancelling order, which determines order from the consumer. It is very discriminatory, especially when there is a dispute between driver, consumer, or restaurant, and the driver is the most victimized, and the company does not hesitate to suspend the account to terminate the employment relationship unilaterally. In this lo uh, local bahasa, we call it putus mitra, or the terminating of the partnership. Uh, and the fourth, we call it is the partnership trap, is that driver are not worker but a partner. This myth that is most often heard when being a driver is better than a factory worker is that you can take a vacation anytime, but the with the consequences of the registered income. Uh, company exploit its worker by forcing driver to continue worker. With the 20% fair cut. The working time need to reach a living wage is 12 and 16 hours. With this kind of working relationship, the driver uh, also have to bear their own production costs, such as motorcycle service, insurance, work accident, and of course, meals before the work. I think there is a four point that why we want to research and engage about this form labor and going to the with the driver online. Yeah, thank, thanks, Riza. That, that's really helpful. Tom, what about you? Uh, I know you have done a lot of uh, interviews, including recently with, uh, with the writers. Uh, why why did you start this research in the first place? And you know what what do you find that is is especially unique or interesting uh, about this kind of work? Thanks, Kevin. I was interested in this kind of work because um, motorbike taxi services is the most popular form of transportation in Vietnam. So when Grab entered Vietnam in two thousand and thirteen, a lot of workers from all across the country line up, sign up to be riders for Grab. And at the time, it was great because everyone was making quite good money from the work to the point that there was the perception that uh, you can earn enough to buy a Mercedes in two years. Uh, that was the perception and it is still the perception of many Vietnamese in regards to the work that 
largest two. So I wanted to understand whether that was true, whether um, the reality was that this was a high income work, um, or whether that came with a cost for the riders. I was also interested in the way that Grab uh, marketed the work to the riders, that they were business partners, whether that was true in nature, that they had um, equal, uh, that they were given equal treatment uh, as business partners, or whether um, they were not given equal treatment. So it was also a question for me as well, because as an academic, I know that from a from a legal perspective, this kind of work is unregulated, and riders are not considered to be employees in most countries, including in Vietnam. So that was another reason for me to engage in this research. The um, third reason is the belief that the riders join this activity because they provide flexibility to the riders. So I wanted our research to test that out, whether uh, there is in reality real flexibility for the drivers or whether that was not the case. And the fourth reason was because the riders are not classified as employees, I wanted to know how that affects their representation, whether they are able to project their voice, to have their voice heard in their workplace, given that they are not employees, but rather uh, so-called business partners to the platform companies. So those were the reasons that attracted me to this work and this yes. research. Thanks, Tom. I, I think what you said, you know, certainly resonate with me and I'm sure it resonate with uh, others, especially, for example, you mentioned the sort of the, the gap between the promise and the reality of working in the platforms and also the fact, you know, their the employment uh, status it really affects, for example, their conditions, legal protections, but also, as you mentioned, representation. So, Kyung, I want you to, to jump in again. You, you have done so much research and uh, engaged also as, a, as an activist with writers in Thailand. Can you share a little bit about the reason you start uh, working on this topic, but also do you see some similarities and differences between the, the situations in, in Indonesia and in Vietnam? Yes, sure. Thanks, Kevin, for asking. Um, yeah, I actually, in in Thailand, I began researching this issue around 2017. I think it was pretty early in Thailand. I think around that time, I was spending quite a bit of time in both the U.S. and Thailand. You know, I was finishing my PhD dissertation, and I got really interested in the debate around taxation, right? At the time, people talked about Uber and, and how it impacts the the, what we call work, right? So the 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 issue of the future of work was also something I was uh, really interested in. So to me, you know, the rise of this platform economy just kicked off the, this shift in how we think about work, and especially make it easier for companies to just you know ignore labor the labor laws without any 
any second thought. And for those of us who work in Southeast Asia, you know, who work with manufacturer manufacturing sectors with workers in this sectors before, we know that you know I got really interested because you know I thought about how this would kind of complicate the situation, the labor situations that is already precarious, right? So mm. it got me thinking like, oh, you know, in a place like Thailand with a big uh, informal um, economy or with the formal economy in which uh, workers' rights are, are not really uh, respected, what would happen mm. to the writers? How is their, you know, experience different from, you know, workers, especially in the global north too? All of these questions just got me really interested, right? And I think similar to, yeah, we I found similar things uh, to, you know, what Tuan and, and Reza said, you know, the fact that in the beginning, writers um, seemed to earn a lot of money, seemed to gain a lot of incomes. And there was this kind of contradictory perception and experiences, right? Like on the one hand, mm. you know, a, a lot of readers and writers and couriers that I interviewed they seem to question or doubt the, the appeal of regular jobs or permanent work already because of the mm. you know abusive environment or neglected rights. They seem to say like, oh, you know, we are not sure you know about us being workers, but at the same time, you know, as as the economy is the platform economy progresses, we see that they're asking for better protection, and you know, there's more and more concerns about social protection and legal mm. rights to association or right to collective bargaining, right? right. So this, I think this contradiction is really interesting to me. And, and I think the question shifts too, as, you know, as Reza uh, talked about a lot of issues that, you know, came, came up after. Yeah, I, I really... Again, hearing uh, all of you you talking about the, the way in which you have engaged on this topic, I, I, I see here so many similarities. One similarity is I want to maybe start focusing on even this early in the conversation is the fact that there has been a lot of resistance and strikes by drivers and careers. And it sounds like it's, it's quite common in this sector. You know, sometimes we call this uh, a sector a quite strike prone. And this trend kind of started well before the pandemic. And I think it exacerbated during the pandemic, right? Because there was a bit more reliance on delivery drivers for food and necessities. I maybe want to start by asking each of you to say a little bit uh, about the situation of strike in the country that you're looking at. What does it look like? You know, how often, to, how often do workers go on strike? Uh, are there unions or are there uh, groups that are supporting them? If you can give us a, a, a just a brief sketch of the situation of resistance, that would be really helpful. So this time, maybe I let's start with uh, Tong first in Vietnam. We know there have been some cases of uh, strikes and resistance in Vietnam. Uh, can you sketch out uh, the situation there? Yep, thanks, Kevin. In Vietnam, the workers have been on strikes, in particularly pre pandemic, workers' strikes occurred mostly around 2019 and 2020. In 2020, there was a major strike by Grab workers, uh, Grab riders, 
and those strikes um, were significant because they used social media uh, as the forum to organize the strikes, to organize the strike and also to communicate with the public as well. Mm-hmm. So the strike had a real impact in that the workers were successful in pushing back against Grab, enforcing the worker the workers to pay the value added tax. So that was a successful news of strikes. However, since the pandemic, the economic turndown has really uh, meant that riders are now working for their survival. And so um, strikes have become much less common nowadays. Uh, but that doesn't mean that workers are not resisting. They are resisting in other forms. Uh, for example, they are resisting by cheating against the um, the system that Grab has set up. As an example, they might call the customer to cancel the ride and instead book a ride with them directly. So that's one way of cheating um, or resisting against what Grab is doing in terms of changing the, the remuneration policy in order to decrease the income of the riders and maintaining the the profits of Grab, if they are making a profits at all at this stage. So that's the first part of Pian's question. Um, Pian, can you re- please repeat your second part of the question? Yeah, so for example, are there unions, are they entirely workers' strikes uh, or are they also unions or writers' groups supporting them? In Vietnam, the workers are not classified as uh, employees and therefore they are not entitled to belong to any of the of the union. There's only one union in Vietnam and that's the General Confederation of Union. It's the state-run union. Vietnam doesn't have freedom of association as yet and so there, there's no independent union that represents the workers. Having said that, the labor law now recognizes this, uh, the establishment of workers' representative organization. However, that new institution has really weak powers and therefore has been ineffective or has been silenced in terms of representing the voice of the riders. So riders basically have to organize themselves uh, mm. into or forming informal unions, if you like. Um, so right, those right. informal unions, those informal unions are organized by the workers and they meet up online and also in person. Right, right, right. You're listening to the Continent of Resistance. We'll get a bit more into the how the the form of organization, how does that impact on organizing and and also the outcomes a little bit later on. Kian, I want to bring you into the conversation. How does it sound? How does that compare to the situation in Thailand? 
Yeah, thank you. Um, I think when I read um, Tuan's uh, piece in the ALR, I saw a lot of similarity. You know, like one of the major similarities that I saw was that um, uh, is the decline in the street protests um, in in the two countries, right? So uh, I think similarly um, in Thailand, we saw the rise or upsurge of street protests around 2019, 2020 as well. What I'm not sure about Vietnam is if there is any change in the demands that the writers changes in the demands of the writers over time or not in Thailand, you know, what I saw in the beginning was I, I think writers, when they had the protests, you know, the demands were not only about, about the, the delivery fees as right now, you know, I think in 2020, there was one major uh, grab protest. And then the demands were a combination of, uh, delivery fees and other uh, that includes regulations, unfair regulations and lack of support, like the, the call center to support writers and couriers was not available to writers as, you know, the working hours. So there is that kind of change in the demands that mm-hmm. later on, I think all the demands revolve mostly around delivery fees because mm-hmm. the, del- the delivery fees have decline so much has dropped to the point right. where it's you know it's less than the minimum wage for example right so to one maybe you maybe you can you can share more can you say more a little bit about the the demands that change oh, uh, in, i mean if you could <laughs> yes yes in vietnam the demand life in thailand uh, relates mainly to the delivery service fee that Grabs tax from the drivers. That's still the main demand. Uh, however, recently, increased drivers' complaints about the deterioration of their health and they want some form of health insurance. So that's, that's a demand as well. And increasingly, there is a demand for Grab to be more transparent in communicating with drivers, consulting with them about changes to their policies. So, and also, uh, what I'm finding in Vietnam at the moment is that the, the, the riders, the trust between the riders and Grab has totally broken down. And there are allegations, for example, from the drivers, from the riders that Grab is not being transparent about the way that they collect the tax, the VAT. There's been development in, in, in relation to that, to that issue since 2020. And there's been allegations by the writers that Grab has really been secretive in the way that it calculates the amount of tax that it collects from or that it deducts from the, the payments that it made to the drivers. Yep. So maybe we can touch on that a bit later. It's a bit complicated, but so so income, transparency, and health issues are the three demands from the riders in Vietnam. Right. Right. Yeah, I think the point about the, the health and accident issues are also they also resonate the demands of, of the riders in Thailand, but these demands are usually 
issued, you know, to advocate for the governments or the the public authorities, right? Not not in Thailand, but not toward the the platforms. So yeah, and and they, and I think I I want to add to my point earlier that you know in Thailand we saw a street protest around 2019 and 20, a couple of big street protests. But now there's some change of strategies too, right? Not only the change of major demands, but strategies where you know we see less and less street protests, but maybe more guerrilla strategies. You know, like mm-hmm. a lot of uh, small groups that I know are doing like locking off the apps and trying to kind of increase their bargaining power in the market, right? Bargaining power through the apps by, you know, locking off to, uh, collectively and then make it right. um, harder for, for customers to find writers, which for, according to them, you know, the delivery fees will increase automatically. And that mm-hmm. is one thing that I saw. But I think because of the political climate in Thailand as well, the, you know, writers or as well as writers are more empowered uh, and more organized. So they um, have voiced their concerns and kind of issued their demands toward like political parties uh, in, in the past year during the, the general elections and, and doing more advocacy with the public authorities, right? That's one thing. Mm. But there's my last point that I think will linked to maybe Reza or to Lips pieces, right? That is, I think, one of the reasons that I think there's a, a decline in street protests and maybe less number of writers supporting like a major uh, protest is, you know, the both the platforms and the governments in especially in Southeast Asia are you know, making it really hard to for writers to come out on this to take to the streets and you know I'm talking yeah. about both economic hardships I'm talking about more control and you know personal and family situations that these writers have to um have mm. to grapple with I think the lips piece from Indonesia really highlight that kind of hardships so maybe the ways I can <laughs> jump on to this conversation in terms of similarities and differences yep, yep. that okay. Kevin asked. Yeah. Okay. In first, since the mobile phone is a work, entertainment, and communication tool by the driver, so using a social media as mobilization and solidarity force, it's very possible to using in, I mean, various countries and as a tone piece is talking about driver in Vietnam using Facebook to mobilize mm-hmm. and solidarity among driver. And in Indonesia, it's still used. I mean, Facebook group, and I read another article in another country too. They're using same tool, same using Facebook group to mobilize and solidarity. But in Indonesia, we have a similarity such, such as and already said, how they outsmart the company such as blogging of the app and they going back to the traditional driver, so they're going to turn off the app, but they're using the fare that or, that's already been in the application. And then in here, probably two months ago, there are much a street protest. I mean, it's spreading. I mean, first, it happened in Karawang. They carry out to urge government to make some regulation to protest driver. They're going to the local authority, uh, such a province province office. They protest, street protest, and 
unfortunately for, and in Surabaya happen again in Surabaya before last year it happened in Thailand so there are three street protests that happened to, to with the same with the same target the local authority it's the a local governance they want to make some of their demand is uh, not only to up the fare of the delivery but there are there are many such working condition insurance but unfortunately it's only success in surabaya but only one demand it's about the mm. the fare of the delivery fee because mm. we already know that in the big city the fare is much more higher than the subsidy or men and the rural so many of the driver want to increase the delivery fee because uh, they see in the bigger city is more than a uh, biggest delivery than other or so many of the local community and driver is going protest to an, uh, their local government to operate up to up the delivery fee for for their their work and uh, that is for the there are more than one demand but unfortunately the government Uh, the local authority can only up one of the re- demand. It's about the delivery fare per kilometer is in Surabaya. It's only one case from the another street protest that happened in Indonesia in this year. That's really interesting, Lasha. So in Indonesia, the local government can ask the platform company can to set to is to increase the, the delivery fee to the, for the drivers? Is that what you're saying? Yes, yes, because in Indonesia, there, is only, there are one of the regulations about the delivery fee. There's already been regulation, but it's only the delivery fee. They're making some of minimum limit from the kilometer and the maximum limit for the kilometer, and that happened in many regions. So the region is... is is different of the delivery fee. There are the regulations, but it's only about the delivery fee per kilometer for the driver. Interesting. Yes. In Vietnam, yeah. The situation is more dire in Vietnam, I guess. Because, yeah, the authorities have issues that are higher in the their agenda than the concern of the riders. And so the riders have been making making a proposal to the government in relation to changes to the tax, for example, of the riders. But those proposals have not been successful. Uh, in fact, one of the leaders said that, you know, they submitted a proposal and they didn't hear back from, from the government's honours. Um, the government has reduced the VIT, right? In order to inc- to maintain to stimulate the demand for the transportation industry, and so that should have helped the uh, riders to maintain their income or to increase the income. But in reality, uh, the income of the riders have actually declined, and one of the reasons for that is because the platform companies have not made the consumer pay the VAT. Instead, the platform company has 
my the drivers bear the VIT in reality. And so the income of the riders have gone backwards because of that also. Um, right. Yeah. Kian, what about hearing the response of the authorities in Vietnam, in Indonesia to the driver's demands? How does it compare to Thailand? Well, I think it makes actually make Thailand's situation sound a little bit depressing. <laughs> There's two things, you know, from what I heard. So from actually from Tuan's answer and also from his article, it seems to me that, you know, the Vietnamese government had taken a stance that is kind of in favor of the writers. And I think that is something that is missing in Thailand. But I, I am really curious if, you know, if Tuan or Reza has any, ha, have any thoughts in terms of how the government in general promote like the platform economies. I guess my question is about the regulations, right? Like, you know, Thailand, Thai government has really resisted to have uh, a robust regulations to regulate the platforms. And we're talking about, you know, across the board, the excessive power of the platforms, right? Like Tuan said, mm. you know, the platform can decide to shift that burden to to the writers instead of customers, right? But for me in general, I, what I see in the region is the, the government in the region kind of have that kind of fetishism <laughs> for, for the platform mm. economy and then kind of reluctant, really reluctant to regulate these platforms. Yeah. So Risa, you, Yeah. Or we said to one having to first to jump in. Yeah. Uh, okay. It's about the policy from the government, right? I mean, yeah. Uh, not so much, but we can see this perspective from their statement until now. But both major media and government still use terminology of partnership in various statement and news. And uh, mm-hmm. we seen as the yesterday Surabaya case is only happened in Surabaya. Because the regulation is local regulation is only happen in Surabaya. And we know out of nine demands, only one only fulfilled, uh, which is increase, increase of kilometer first, uh, about demand about working condition, reduction cut from, from the company were not accommodated by the local government. Until now, there are no special rules regarding the rights and protection of the online driver, worker from the government. If... Uh, like I said already, is about kilo, uh, in uh, kilometer fare is only ha- it's only regulated in the in the Minister of Transportation of Regulation. It's uh, it's not from a labor gov- labor regulation. So there are no rights and protection for the online driver. And this year, the government claimed that it's tra- they trying to make the regulation regarding online driver, but we see this is. It's only effort to reduce a spread the spreading of the street protests that such happen in Karawang in Surabaya. We don't see this is a as a good fact, but we seen because the spreading of the street protest is more and more uh, happen in the uh, in this year. Uh, for example, yesterday they have been a massive street protest. We call the the protest of the one million labor. And many of the driver or community driver is coming to solidarity with mm. the another union for the omnibus law because the omnibus law spirit is a flexibility, flexibility labor market and cheap labor. Right. So they support supporting another union in there. Uh, in the middle of this silent exploitation by the platform company, uh, 
the government appointed Nadi Makarim, a founder of Gojek, as the Churan Minister of Education, which is they make some problem too in our education, such as make some internship program, so many of the students can go to the labor market with the cheap, we call it cheap labor, so... That's the standing of our government. I'm not mm. saying it's better than another regional such terrain of Vietnam, but it's more heavy when we said that the situation is in, in Indonesia. Right, right. Tong, Tong do you yeah. have any yeah, response, reaction? Yes, what Waisa said, I also like resonate with. I think in Vietnam, the government is making changes in order to stimulate consumer spending rather than to support the driver as its main objective. So in terms of changing the law to allow drivers more protections, that is not happening in Vietnam and it doesn't seem to going to happen uh, for some time. So the measures that the Vietnamese governments are taking it for microeconomic reasons rather than having the concern of the drivers at their core. So the drivers are benefiting from us, but indirectly rather than directly from, from those policies. This is part one of our conversation on drive and platform labor in Asia. Stay tuned for the second part of our conversation. You have been listening to the Continent of Resistance podcast. You can download our latest episode on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also visit our website at laborreview.org. See you until next time.